Welcome to Breaking Free. I'm Rania Kurdi, a transformational life coach, comedian, and mother of two. And you can join me weekly to hear some intimate self-reflections and conversations with inspirational friends and guests from all around the world, sharing what they needed to break free from in order to live a life of purpose. My guest today is Ellen Newhouse, a healer and author of Nothing Ever Goes On Here, an honest and painful description of her struggles growing up with a charming but cruel father, an intelligent yet mentally ill mother, but against all odds, breaks free from the chains of generational abuse and becomes a healer to others. Ellen, welcome to the Break Free podcast. I'm so pleased to have you on as my first guest to share your powerful story today. I honestly couldn't put the book down. But before I express how it impacted me reading it, I would love for you to describe to us what your journey has been like. Yes. Well, it was a long journey for sure. And I think one of the most important things that I got coming out and through all of this is that no matter where you have been, no matter what has happened to you, you can absolutely heal your life and create a life that really, really thrills you. And I think that's so important because so many people I see as patients, you know, can feel so lost and so frustrated in the middle of healing. You know, healing is messy, messy, messy. And, you know, when you're actually beginning to heal, you actually may feel worse for a while than you did before you started unpacking and unraveling your story and the history. And it can get very confusing, like, whoa, shouldn't I be feeling better already? And, you know, no, it takes time, but you will absolutely get there. You just have to stay in the path. Oh my gosh. Oh oh my gosh. I mean, I wouldn't be here today for sure not. I, you know, I would probably be very, very ill if I remained on the planet, you know, at 26, when my life completely catapulted out of control. It looked good on the outside. I had an amazing, I had the best job of my whole life. I had just won the job a year and a half earlier and I was in sales at Vanity Fair magazine at such an exciting time when Vanity Fair was just being brought out again. It was, oh, it was thrilling, you know? So on the surface, on the outside, it all looked good, but on the inside, I wasn't well. It's the healing on the inside that makes all the difference because I think when you're going through very difficult time, you get very used to numbing yourself and and your subconscious is making oh, you think absolutely. that that's what's keeping you safe and you feel very unsafe to start this healing process of letting yourself feel again and be vulnerable again for sure oh for sure i mean i you know i didn't people often ask me you know it's like how are you so brave to choose this and the truth is is that my being my soul being erupted at 26 years of age and i woke up and i couldn't breathe so Yes, I could have stayed on, say, a Western medical route, but actually that route, I spent two years in Western medicine and they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And I couldn't even, 
in those days, even if they had asked the right questions, I couldn't have even answered them. So, you know, at the very last appointment with a huge specialist in this area, he said, all right, we have good news and bad news. I said, great, give me both. And he described how they really didn't understand why I wasn't breathing optimally, but we all knew I wasn't and why nothing was working. And then he said, but we have good news. I leaned in. I said, great, give it to me. What is it? And he said, we're going to give you an oxygen tank. I was like, what? Like, this is not a solution. And at that time, for me, I had been brought up to believe that doctors were like demigods. And when your demigods fall, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, what do you do? For me, as I walked home in the middle of New York City, pouring down rain, I decided that I was going to pray to God. It was the only thing that I thought was a good solution. And for me, luckily, I've had a very strong relationship to God from the moment I appeared here on earth. And in that moment, God didn't come to me and say, Ellen, this is God speaking. But what did happen was that I committed to a prayer practice in Rania. Within one month, my life changed. Wow. I mean, from very early on, you had a God journal that you wrote in. And and I think that as well saved you because you were sort of talking to someone, channeling, feeling that there was a higher force there that was there for you, as well as the dreams that you had and visits from angels. I love that part where you went and healed other children. So I think that's probably been with you right from the beginning, saving you. And then when you needed it again, it was there for you. Yes, I think that is so lucky because I know so many people don't believe in God. And luckily for me, I needed something to lean on and I had God. And the wonderful thing is that I had this relationship with God that I felt completely safe to yell and scream at him when things weren't going right, when I was praying and asking God, please come and make this better. And often it would make it worse. And I am amazed looking back on it that I even continued to believe in God because it didn't look good. You know, I would pray to God to come and make him stop having my father be so violent. And often, you know, the next day he was more violent. So why I was possessed to continue to believe, I'm not exactly sure. I feel graced, truly, truly graced that I was able to have this thing called God, whatever that is to any of you listening, to support me. Because I am not sure, Rania, how somebody would get through that without a belief in something bigger than ourselves. Definitely. I mean, what comes over in this book, how strong you were, how sad it is that you had to be the parent you know, to to a yes. father who also struggled. You could see that his violence was because he struggled as a child and he had a mum that was very mean to him. But then he took it out on all of you and that your mother also had a difficult time in her childhood. And so she didn't stand up for herself and, and she saw that her mental illness was something to hide or be ashamed of and sort of mixed really with more depression than anything. And so you had to pick up the pieces for everybody. and. It was so strong when you said such a beautiful way of describing things in the book, Ellen, 
because it's from a child's perspective, but with the reflections of an adult who's now healed and understands it and where it's from. It resonated with me a lot, my journey, which is far less painful, but I could still understand it without the domestic violence, like the when you talk about the heavy silence. Yes, and I think you make an important point is that even if somebody hasn't gone through the level of domestic violence that I, you know, experienced is that I'm so glad you felt the book was relatable because, you know, I think, you know, sometimes people say, well, I didn't experience that bad. And I always tell people, it doesn't matter the level. If you have experienced some kind of hardship, it it really doesn't matter the level. We all have our own experiences and we must honor them. And not compare them with anybody else's experience because to compare is not divine and it gets us into a lot of trouble. So I'm so glad that you felt it was relatable, you know, even though you, you we've had different experiences. Like I said, you wanted to be the kid, not the mom. And I definitely felt that. And I can understand that that's where codependency comes from and rescue syndrome, where we continuously find partners and friends and people in our lives where we want to rescue because we're so used to that role. And it's very tiring and you really never allow someone else to do the caring for you, which is what we all wanted as a child. So it's funny that we keep putting ourselves in the same situation. And you kept begging her to leave your dad. And when she wouldn't, you felt like she disgusted you because she wasn't putting you guys first, you and your brothers and your sister. And she wasn't strong enough to be that mum that was a role model that you wanted. Like when you described that, even when he did leave, though, not only did she beg for him to come back and fell to pieces, you begged for him to come back. Isn't that unbelievable? Yeah, because you said you felt unsafe being alone with her because, yeah, so I can see how difficult. As unsafe as I felt with him, he was predictable in some, his unpredictability became predictable. But when when he left and we were left with a mother who was more child than mother and mentally ill and would use alcohol at the bottom, you know, when she was bottoming out, that was more frightening to me than his violence. And so, yes, I was a child caught between no wins, you know, and neither, neither side was a win. It's, it's so difficult to imagine you and the feeling that you must have of no choice, you know, at that age, you, there was no way out. There was no way out. That's a great, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, I think one of the ways in which I escaped was to leave my body. And, you know, for many years as an adult, as I began this journey of healing, people would say to me, you know, you're not in your body. What does that even mean? You know, for somebody who's been living outside of their body, I couldn't even understand. Like, what do you mean? Yeah. Where am How I? How do I get in my body? In my body. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And where where am I? And they would say, well, you're around here. You're hovering. And my gosh, I cannot tell you how frustrating I found that. And what I realized was that living outside of my body was safe. There, I didn't have to feel the violence. There, I was safe. When I came back into my body, which was a huge part of my healing process, 
then I had to feel again. And oh my God, Rania, it, I cannot tell you, I spent five years, all I did was heal every single day because I couldn't work. So I was in talk therapy twice a week. I was, well, sometimes three times a week. I was in body therapy twice a week. And at that point I had begun studying acting and acting became another form of healing. But to feel the pain that I had managed to shove down in my body and not feel was horrific. It was so scary. I mean, I I cannot tell you how frightening those days were. Wow, that's so brave, Ellen. It's just so amazing that even though you're you're in a safe place and you're no longer under threat, that it can be even scarier and more painful to just relive the feeling. Yes, and it was confusing because one day, I'll give you an example. One day I was walking home to my apartment in the middle of New York City and I felt so afraid I could barely continue walking. The closer I got, the worse it got. And I didn't understand that I was having an anxiety attack. And I kept imagining police being waiting for me at the at the apartment and it did not like make sense i understood enough that i was like to talk to myself i was like ellen there are going to be no police but the threat was unbelievable and i didn't understand that i had regressed while being in an adult body i was fully regressed to a time when the police did arrive at our house and was taking my father away and the wires in your brain, in my brain, were so confused that every alarm system, every, you know, adrenaline rush, every cortisol rush was rushing through my body and I could barely walk home. And it took so much courage. I remember looking down the road and and seeing that there were no police. And then I thought that they were hiding from me, were just waiting. And all of this was the way in which my brain was putting old pictures together. And I don't know if you're familiar with EMDR. Do you know that methodology? So when I finally found a therapist who did EMDR, he explained to me, it was like, oh, no, that makes perfect sense because our eyes and our mind remember certain lights when we had trauma and it's stored in the brain. So that day, what for whatever reason, I was remembering light in a certain way and I had had body therapy that was bringing up all these old memories that I couldn't even put together. Oof. I was thinking it could be anything. It could be the weather. It could be that time of year. It could be a smell that can trigger you back, can't it? Yes. Yes. And if we don't understand it, oh, this is where it's very painful, you know, because and, you know, for anybody who is listening, who may be experiencing these things, I want to say you're right on track. And, you know, I want you to find somebody who can help you to understand why you're having anxiety attacks, why, you know, you experience these 
painful memories, but you you can't quite put it together. Yeah, because when you don't understand and you don't know there is a name for certain things and there's a reason for certain things, you can just blame yourself, think you're crazy, think you're oversensitive, and it just makes it worse, doesn't it? You know, so I'm so grateful that we are living in a time when, at least in the Western world, we're beginning, just beginning. Can you believe this? I mean, we're in 2021 and we're just beginning to take shame away from the idea of suffering from mental illness. You know, I've never understood this. Even as a child, I, I could, you know, remember saying to my mother, Mom, if you had a broken leg, you would just go to the hospital and have them fix your broken leg. So why are you worried about going to the hospital because you have a problem in your brain. Even as a child, I couldn't understand this, you know. Ellen, that's what was so amazing is you had this logic that nobody else in the family seemed to as grown-ups, you know, even with racism. So your father would say something really racist and you would say, but doesn't the religion say that everybody is the same or we, we you know, love everybody? So to you, that was totally logical. Absolutely. Or, yes, you know, and... mental illness is not something that's <laughs> written in religion saying this is shameful, yet, you know, the whole community sees it as if it is part of the religion. But you could see these things very clearly. And it must have been very confusing for you as a child that you were seeing things one way and everyone else was seeing it another. Yes. And my father would often tell me that I was crazy, you know, and, you know, he would say, you know, what is wrong with you? And now I think to myself, well, what is everything was right with me, you know? And yet it was so confusing because in my mind, this seems, seems very, very logical. And yet I was experiencing, like, like with racism, I was experiencing being beaten up because I opened the door as the buses came through and I was like, welcome to the you know, after I'd been told, you know, this is when busing was, was beginning in Boston. And I was told specifically that day by my father to not open the door. And I remember thinking, he's crazy. These are wonderful people. What is he talking about? And so I had no validation that what I was thinking was correct. And so I used to beg God to come and take me home because I did not feel at home in my family. I did not feel at home in my skin. I did not feel at home in my body. And it was very confusing. And yeah, I would just ask him, you know, there were two things I would ask. One, take me home. And the other thing I would pray for is, could you just let me wake up and be normal? Because then you wouldn't know any different. I felt that, that if you didn't know, if you believed everything that they said, if you behaved the way that they behaved, maybe it wouldn't have been as bad, but you rebelled. And I didn't even feel rebellious. It, it just was, I understood my truth and everything that I felt, my father and my mother were saying no. And, you know, so what is a child to do with that? You know, that and there's where, you know, thank goodness I had my God journals and I had God because I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Now, the other thing I was going to say, the other saving grace was teachers. I had amazing teachers and I felt so incredibly loved by them. And so they were also my saving grace. Yeah, I don't think teachers realize how important they can be in children's lives if they are good influence. 
they can totally save you. Yeah. And they did. They absolutely saved me. And luckily I was a good student, so they loved me and and I really felt loved by them. You know, you, when you said you asked God to take you back home, it made me think of you were given a choice to be taken back home in your dreams that you had with the angels. And I, I thought that was a really difficult decision for you to make, to be told, right, you can either come with us, which you knew meant death in your physical body, or you can stay with your family. And you chose your family. Absolutely. And I knew in that dream, I'll never forget this dream as long as I live. I knew in that dream that if I didn't stay there with my family, that there would be huge repercussions. And as painful as it was to stay in a family that didn't understand me, and where there was a great amount of violence on every level, emotional, physical, spiritual violence. I just couldn't imagine leaving them. So you stayed really as a savior, as a rescuer. It wasn't for yourself as much as it was to not leave them behind. Yes. And I had so, I, this might be hard to understand, but I had so much love for both my mother and my father and all my siblings, even though there was so much violence. And yes, one of the most painful parts of the healing journey was learning to unlearn to rescue. As an adult, when I had to release that identity, right, of because trying to say rescue lovers, you know, this is a really painful way to go in a relationship. And then learning to become vulnerable enough to open to receive. Wow. That was really, really difficult because when you're rescuing, you are not in a position to receive. And part of experiencing violence on any level is you shut that door, absolutely close that door so that you don't have to feel the pain. And in order to be in a healthy relationship, you must release the rescuer identity. Yeah. And I think to be a coach and a healer, you need to do that as well, or it will drain your energy completely. You have to have the boundaries. You have to have the empathy without getting involved that you want to just take over and rescue. Yes, yes. And and boy, I had many lessons in the beginning as a healer of not understanding those boundaries and going home with people's pain. And let me tell you, I never would have survived, you know, in a healing practice because it would have been too exhausting. And, it, you know, it is such a gift to have empathy, but there must be a boundary with it. And I can totally understand reading your book that you have a love, hate, fear relationship with your parents because there's a vulnerable side to them. There's a childlike wounded victim side to them that you see that you hear their problems, you're, you're seeing things from all angles. And, and when you see the anger come out, you know that they're not fully that. You know it's a reaction and that they're not that 100% of the time. And I think that's why a lot of partners stay in relationships with violent spouses or, yeah. I'm amazed at the question, you know, why does she stay? And, you know, as if it was crystal clear, you know, that, you know, and as humans, we are so many different colors and we're not just these, if we were just say monsters, it would be easy to leave 
because there's always a positive side. You know, I remember when I first started therapy and I was explaining my God journals to a therapist and she said, you know, could you bring them in? And I said, well, I'll give you, you know, I'll bring one in, of course, you know, I'm not going to bring all of them in. And she was looking through them and she found my doodles of these like sort of very dark men and then very light men. And she said, you know, could you describe them to me? And what I realized without realizing it as a child was that I was in fact doodling, drawing the two fathers, you know, the happy father, the funny fat man that everybody loved, and then the monster father. And I completely disconnected them. And I think that's what we do as human beings when it's too painful is we we create compartments where people live. And so, you know, if somebody was just horrific all the time, my goodness, it would be easy to leave. And and that picture of your parents when they were on their honeymoon that you kept looking at in the book, I think people can hang on to a memory of something being good and then not face that things aren't like that anymore and and just live on that memory of when it was good. And I felt like that picture was a constant repetition of that or reflection of that. Yes, and they were such a beautiful couple. I mean, if you saw the picture, they look really like a, a Hollywood star. I mean, especially my mom, a Hollywood starlet. And it's a picture I will never forget. It is etched into my memory. And they look like they're leaving for their honeymoon and they look so happy. And, you know, even then when I spoke to my mother, you know, many years later about all the abuse that she had suffered, I asked her, I said, you know, when did he start beating you? And she said, you know, even before I walked down the aisle and I was crushed and I thought, wow, you know, why did she walk down that aisle? And, you know, so many people do. I think you think you can change someone or you believe you don't deserve better. And it sounded like she had quite a difficult childhood with her grandmother, was it? Yes. And, you know, her father had died when she was just eight years old and she wasn't allowed in those years to even go to his funeral. And he was her hero. And as soon as the funeral was done, her mother announced, you know, I am, well, before even moments before she said, I wished I had died with him. And, you know, and she said, now I have to go work full time and I'm leaving you at home with this grandmother. And even her mother, sounded so cold, like not to allow a child to go to a funeral, not to, you know, hold her and explain, you know, what had happened. So she didn't even know where her father, where her hero had gone to. And now she's left alone with this horrific grandmother who I believed abused her. And so, you know, and my mom was so beautiful and she didn't, she never knew how beautiful she was. And, you know, my father was very handsome. And I think in a way she bought his handsomeness. It's like, you know, she wanted, you know. The fairy tale, isn't it? Known. Oh, it's such a fairy tale. Yes. And he had gone in his own right. His mother hated him. And so you have these two really beautiful people who were so abused in their own right, who came together and, you know, the abuse, the generation of abuse just continued. 
Yeah. So the cycle just keeps going on until somebody is awakened and can break that cycle. And it's a lot of responsibility on that one person. But, you know, you are that person. Yes. In my family, I am that person. And for anyone who's listening, you know, often I find that that person feels like the black sheep in the family. You know, they often don't feel like they fit in in the family. They're often blamed a lot. They are considered the problem often. Like, oh, if only you wouldn't think Because you're mirroring everything, aren't you? You're saying this, this is a problem. Yes. And you're holding up a mirror to to them to say, look, and they don't want to look. And so if you would just go away with your mirror, then everything would be okay. Which of course isn't the truth. But so yes, so for people who are, you know, who feel often like they don't fit in, who feel alone, I just want you to know that you're actually in fact right on track. And there are many, many more people for you to join with as you begin your own healing process. Yeah, that's comforting, I think, for a lot of people to to hear that because they might self-blame and say, what's wrong with me? Because they're always asked what's wrong with you, like your dad would say to you and say to your mom. I mean, it almost could be the title of the book. <laughs> right, but, right. Yeah. But the title of the book is profound. Nothing ever goes on here. I'd highly recommend it, by the way. It's, it's such a good read that it's something he said to you. Your dad grabbed you and quietly told you on the side of the road, remember, nothing ever goes on here. And that must have been a really scary moment, I think, or painful moment to know that you have to be, you know, it's it's like someone assaulting you or someone attacking you or kidnapping you and telling you this is a secret and you're not allowed to tell anyone. You know, it's that fearful feeling of this has to be kept undercover. I can't ask for help is, is what came up for me when when I read that bit. Yes. And I don't know if you remember, and I, I, I'm almost tempted not to give it away, but we will. If you remember that, he made me repeat that sentence. Do you remember that? You may not remember it. And, and there is something about that kind of emotional abuse is that you are made to speak a truth that you know is not true and to let go of your own truth. And as we've discussed, the book was made into a one-woman show that I ended up performing in 2019. And that moment in the show always gives me, like every time I do it, just this rush of goosebumps of like, of, oh gosh, how, I mean, how is she going to say that? Oh my God. It's your moment of power, isn't it? It's that one moment of everything turning. Yes. It really gets me every single time, even in the show, when she's staring into his eyes and thinking, how am I going to do this? And you know, I think what's what's hardest as well is you were your father's favorite. And can you imagine doing something like this to your favorite child? You know, if that's what blows me away is how his pain was so, so overtook him that he could hurt his own flesh and blood. And, and this always 
gets me is that is is he was so overtaken with his rage. It's like in those times, I don't even think he even could see me that I actually even existed in his cold rage. I, I don't think I existed. That's very scary when you feel you're not seen or you're not heard. That no matter what you say or what you do, that person in front of you is in such rage that they don't see it. But he is in so much of his victimhood that he doesn't realize he's a perpetrator. And I think a lot of perpetrators are coming from that place of, I am a victim. And so whatever I do to anyone else is not violent, I suppose, or bad, because I am the one that's hurting. Yeah, and I am not even sure, Rania, that the adult person was even present in those moments. I think if we as a culture understood that when people are often enraged, that they are so regressed in their child, their wounded child, that the adult person is not there. And, you know, I think as a culture, we, we deeply need to understand these things so that we begin to know how to heal people who have, say, violent tendencies, who have done violent things. It's like, you know, I think as a culture, we have to understand this so we can begin to really help people to heal. Yeah, we need to heal the child that's within. Like, I often imagine, what if, and oh, this can bring tears to my eyes, what if, say, in a prison system, if we had guides who went to work with prisoners and they were to work with their child and they were even to hold the people and hug them in a safe way. Like, I can't even imagine the amount of pain that exists in people in prison systems today and that they continue to feel so horrible in themselves. And often I think that these people need to be loved. I need to understand what part of them is violent, what part of them is so wounded that they would hurt another person. Going back to your childhood and and what you said about your mom being so beautiful, it was painful for you to see how she didn't take care of herself anymore. And you wanted her to be beautiful. I loved how you had a little salon <laughs> where you would do her hair and you'd give her face masks and make her feel good about herself and do her nails. That was so beautiful. And then just so painful that when you went to visit her at the hospital and you had that moment alone with her in the car when you were 11, how she looked and how withdrawn and, and what she said to you. Can you take us through that? Yes. So unfortunately, my father made a very poor choice in taking me to go visit her after she has had shock treatment. And I was so excited to go see her, not understanding, you know, what I was about to encounter. And so he went to get her and I'm sitting alone in the car and I'm so excited. I cannot wait to see her because I had such a great love for her. And as I see him coming out of the hospital 
with this woman. I'm looking and all I am seeing is a woman who looks like the zombie version of a lunch lady. And her hair, her beautiful hair is matted down. And as she gets closer to the car, I am petrified. I am literally petrified. And she gets into the car to visit. And my father leaves. He says he's going to the cafeteria to give us two some time to visit. And I am I'm literally petrified in my body. And she does not look like my beautiful mother. She has a gaze about her in her eyes that really frightened me. She looked like a zombie. Her speech, you know, I'll, I'll never forget how she said my name. You know, hello, Ellen. Like, as if she didn't know who I was. And, oh, like a stranger. Like, and almost worse than a stranger. Just somebody who didn't even know where they were. And I'm sure she didn't. She had just had shock treatment. And she never, a child should never see their mother after just having shock treatment. And in those days, they did shock treatment in a very cruel way. I mean, I think shock treatment is cruel, period. But in those days, it was even more cruel than the way it is administered. And as we were going through the conversation, I mean, she was completely, not only was she there, but she, you know, she's started shaking back and forth and then she began crying telling me that they had done these horrific things to her and she just wanted to come home now i'm 11 exactly you're hearing this and you feel responsible you've got to do something but what can you do i could i could just feel your dilemma and you tried so hard to say to your dad can we keep her or can she can we bring her home yes like dad please just let's take her home. This place is no good. And watching her being walked back into the place where I knew that they were going to hurt my mother. I, I mean, talk about not being able to stay in your body. It was just horrific. And even as I'm telling you this story now, I can't imagine. I still can't imagine the strength that it took an 11-year-old child to deal with that. Because now I'm also part of the problem, you see. He's taken me there. I haven't just extracted her out of there. Now I feel responsible. And, and what was sad was you thought he was taking you because she wanted to see you, but he was taking you because he didn't want to deal with her. So he'd just sort of leave exactly. you with her. It wasn't because I was special. That was, I mean, there are so many moments in that scene that I realized so many things. And that poor child, you know, I just can't even imagine, you know, realizing that your dad has, hasn't taken you because you're special but because he doesn't want to have to deal with her. And now he puts you to be responsible for a woman who's just had shock treatment. Yeah, so none of your parents are dealing like adults or parents. No, they're not parents. They're children. They're wounded, very, very wounded children. So how as an actress, Ellen, do you do something so close to home and play the characters in your one-woman show 
repeating over and over the things that happened in your life that were painful. In the beginning, you know, I had written the book, so that was one level of unpacking. And I had been, by the time I wrote the book, I'd been in therapy for 26 years. So I had healed a great deal. But as you know, there's always levels and layers of healing. And so by the time I did the one woman show in the beginning, like in rehearsals, there were days that I was absolutely, you know, looked like a scrambled egg on the, on the, the theater floor. But after a while, interestingly enough, they became characters like any other character you would play. And in fact, the play helped me to heal on a new level. And you know that saying, you know, don't judge until you have stood in someone else's shoes. My God. I mean, truly, truly, to play my father was to stand in his shoes and to love him and to understand him as a human being. Because as actors, unless we love our characters, I don't think we have any business to play them, to portray them, because then we're in judgment, right? We are in judgment of the human condition. And I believe in its highest form, acting is a healing vehicle, actually, because we love the unlovable. You know, as human beings, we're all in judgment. We judge one another, we judge ourselves. And as actors, we have that rare opportunity to take back the curtain and look at what creates this particular human being. And it was so healing for me. You know, I had had a lot of issues with my mom growing up. And I am so grateful that I played her, portrayed her before she died. And it was such a healing vehicle for me, because as a child, as you said, I was in rescue mode, right? I wanted my mother to be the mother of all mothers, and she was not. And so I could not allow her, her humanity. But as an actress playing her, I could let her be herself full on without trying to rescue her. And it was so healing, and she loved the fact she got to speak to my director one day on the phone, and she loved the fact that she was being portrayed on a stage. She oh, how wonderful. Loved it. Yeah, it was really wonderful. Yeah. And she, you know, had only wished that, you know, she was well enough to, to come and see it. And I asked my director if she could, if we could bring it to Connecticut where she was living. And God bless my director. She said, we will work on that. And I'm so glad that she knew that that was happening before she died. Well, Ellen, thank you so much. I could go on forever talking to you about, about your story and this book. Oh, Bronya, thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was such a joy. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of Breaking Free, please share it with your friends or on your social media platforms. And of course, I'd really love it if you can subscribe, rate or review the show. 
You can reach me directly at ranyakurdi.com if you would like to ask a question, comment on what you heard today, or find out how I can support you on your journey.